Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. Today's incredible guest is Anka Montinska. She is the cinematographer behind such projects as I Know What You Did Last Summer, Pretty Little Liars, Original Sin, Monsterland, and Steve Buscemi's upcoming film, The Listener, starring Tessa Thompson. She's been heralded by Variety as one of the top 10 cinematographers to watch, and she has certainly earned that accolade. Her work is incredibly stunning, and we have a great conversation about her career trajectory, some of the projects she's worked on, and we get as close, I think, to an actual film school lesson in today's episode as she breaks down how she chooses certain lenses and camera setups, uh, what she thinks about film versus digital, and so much more near the end of the episode. We also talk at length about what it's like working with a visionary director and actor like Steve Buscemi. I hope you'll listen to the entire episode. There is so much great, valuable content. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Anka Malatinska. I want to kind of start with your big inspirations. I heard you on another podcast uh, talking about two movies that really shaped you as a cinematographer um, out of Africa and uh, one of my favorite movies, Slumdog Millionaire. Tell me a little bit about the first time seeing those movies and the impact that they had on you. You know, I think, uh, and I'll say this from one Polish person to another, <laughs> being a Polish person who was born in Poland um, in a communist country, I was lucky that my dad, my dad was a Himalayan mountain climber, which allowed him to travel outside the country. Wow. And there was a bit of an international community, you know, but that idea of exotic, faraway places, you know, with all of their colors and spices, because it's true, it's true what like you hear that living in communism was in Poland was super gray. Yeah, right. Gray and dull and colorless. I don't remember the year that Out of Africa came out. Do you know when it came out? I don't, not off the top of my head. But I think I was pretty young and I was, you know, and I don't remember if I was still in Poland or if I was already in the United States, but I really felt like that movie took me on a journey. And uh, I think that's like that's the exciting thing for me about movies, about TV, about telling visual stories is going on a journey that's not just a word journey, but visuals, I feel like, allow us to kind of access emotions and thought forms that, you know, at different levels, just by yeah. being emotionally like impacted, you know, and then the themes in Out of Africa for me, which were like the, 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 the freedom versus commitment that kind of a struggle and dynamic has always gone on in my heart. Freedom versus commitment, you know, expanding out into the world versus, um, you know, staying home with your loved ones and tending right. to the community. And then Slumdog Millionaire, you know, again, like it's that visual journey into a world that I don't get to travel to. Mm -hmm. um, a world that doesn't surround me, that gives me insights into something that I've never seen. And then I love, you know, what I what really impacted me with Slumdog Millionaire. I love difficult stories. I love talking about the truth and pointing towards the truth of, you know, of, of our reality mm -hmm. of using storytelling as a vehicle to, you know, really spark conversation. But I love being inspired mm -hmm. <laughs> at the end and having yeah. hope at the end and having like energy towards, you know, which I think Slumdog Millionaire was a beautiful fairy tale like that. Right you know, yeah. that allowed us to journey into a very difficult story into some really difficult, dark places, but then like, you know, gave us that fairy tale ending. And maybe that's, you know, my attraction to, you know, American storytelling, Hollywood movies, yeah. you know, the happy ending, the hope at the end, which is very different from, um, you know, a lot of the Polish cinema that I like came from very early on. <laughs> right. There's obviously many people that experience this through viewing it. When did you have the pivot where it's like, I want to create these experiences for people? Like, I don't want to just escape through movies. I want to create escapes through movies. 
coming from communist Poland, being inspired to travel and seek the world. Like I was like in a way by, by expanding, by immigrating out of Poland, by moving to America and by having really, like, I feel like I, in, in some sense, like I was already actively engaged in that creation and much more so because it's what I wanted, you know, right. it's not like I wanted, I was like stoked. We're going to Tucson, Arizona from Warsaw, Poland. Right. Um, and then, you know, I, I mean, I was performing in theaters and like mm. local and community theaters when I was a kid from the ages of like nine to 13. And I was actively by the time I was 11, like running around with a camera. My mom was a scientist mm. and her lab had a dark room. Um, and I would go there on the weekends with my mom and I taught myself how to develop and still photos. So mm. it was like really early on, but it was still like a form of documenting, I feel like, and capturing more. Funny enough, you know, acting in theater, I kind of, uh, when I was 13, I got an agent, and then I was almost in a commercial, and then I heard the agent on the phone, like, making deals about people, and I was like, oh my god, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that, and I kind of took a very strong left turn away from any kind of theater, and uh, continued on with photography, continued on with math and science and by the time I was done with college I feel like you know cinematography really put together everything you know the storytelling the photography the science part um and it was really in college at NYU that I like you know I was doing a lot of photography but cinematography was like the next step you know mm -hmm. of experimenting with a visual image, you know, and I ended up graduating from the film program and I ended up, uh, my first job was, was the day after I graduated five o'clock in the morning, I was driving a camera truck um, mm. and I was a loader on a feature. Tell me about the experience first day being on a set. Was that, was it like this moment where you're like, okay, now I'm seeing past the magic <laughs> instantly? Or was it something where it's like, this is amazing. Like I'm working on a camera truck wow, on a movie. <laughs> it was like, this is amazing. I get to work with my friends on yeah. really fun things. Like all my other, I had three roommates from college and they all had corporate jobs right out of college. And, you know, like they seemed right away to be like really stifled by their nine to five schedule. And I was like coming home at seven o'clock in the morning. Right. Your I five to five schedule. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but you know, but at like 21, 22, like yeah. I was full of energy after that night shoot, you know, and, and the camaraderie, I mean, I'm sure it was stressful, but I just remember having a blast. Right. Obviously you had goals and aspirations for what you wanted to do in the cinematography realm. How strategic was it going from, okay, I'm working on the crew now. I want to start working into getting a job as a cinematographer in this role. Like, how did you, how did you kind of map that journey out? Well, you know, I'd say that really the journey was a was was more for me about a commitment to continuing to shoot no matter what mm -hmm. I'm doing to pay the bills. Um, and that was like some of the early advice that I got from my mentors was work in every department. Mm -hmm. Don't work in it so long that you get into the union and then you get into, used to the money and then you right. don't um, you don't make that jump. Um, you know, which really was like a decision to be a starving artist for many years. And it's true. Right. It was, um, you know, it, and eventually I kind of a DP who I had worked for as an electrician called me, you know, and, and you know that you're that last call at 10 PM to come in 5 AM tomorrow morning and operate right. on a TV show. Um, and I, I went in and that TV show turned union on a videotape contract. So, you know, it, it was kind of like, you know, the story was I went to AFI and then I got into the union as an operator right away. Yeah. But really there was like 10 years of like shooting ultra low budget stuff, doing anything that I can get my hands on being a loader. You know, I worked in, the camera department for only a year and I kind of really strongly felt like in camera you're so busy all the time that it was impossible for me to learn the lighting and that's where I like I ended up moving to LA apprenticing to James Chrysanthus who had been a protege of Vilma Sigmund and Laszlo Kovacs and after apprenticing to him 
I, I started getting days in the union in LA yeah. um, as an electrician, as a grip. I never got into either union. And it was a DP that I had been an electrician for that called me to operate on a show. And, you know, the rest is not history. There was a long road from there. Sure. But, you know, but I got into the union as an operator and I started actively operating. What's the biggest thing that you think film school did not prepare you for? It's not about your shot. Hmm. <laughs> You know, and that's like, I think, you know, in film school, I feel like especially, you know, at AFI in the cinematography program, when I was there, cinematographers actually like somehow the, that, you know, we had a lot, like we had choice of what directors we work with. And, you know, somehow we even, I think there were more directors than cinematographers, which kind of gave the cinematographers a little bit more power, right. um, which then um, teaches a false power structure that doesn't really exist in, mm. you know, in the working world. And I remember I, I actually getting out of graduate school and like, and totally unconsciously, you know, carrying this attitude that like, you know, unfortunately, some film schools are known for of like, don't hire the recent graduates because mm. they're full of themselves, you know, mm. and it's not even that I was full of myself, but it's more that I was, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be done, right. you know, and now, um, you know, I don't know how many years has it been? It's been, you know, well over 25 years into my career. There is no one way. Mm -hmm. There is no one way. There is no right way. You know, there's a network way. There's a, you know, but like, I feel like there are as many ways to tell a story visually as there are human beings in the world. <laughs> um, right. And that we are actually evolving the visual language. And there's some basics of grammar, but yeah. And I feel like that was my transition moving away from what I feel like, you know, is mine and my creativity mm -hmm. to the team and to the story and then you know really honestly like I feel like what really has elevated my career is you know I am of service to that director mm -hmm. you know I am of service to those showrunners and to that story and you know I am 100% a team player you started in the documentary world a little bit um talk to me a little bit about approaching that as a cinematographer because working in documentary, there's a lot that's happening just to you and in front of you that you're capturing versus being as strategic and planning out every single thing that's going to happen. Um, how did you approach that versus say narrative later on down the road? Well, I think, uh, I think documentaries are about being really fluid. They're about being fluid, about being observant, about listening to the subject matter, you know, and I think in documentaries more than anything, it's like as a camera person, as the person yielding the camera on their arm, you right. have to listen to the story. Whereas if you just start camera operating, you know, say in narrative, like in a narrative television structure, like, unless you ask for a com tech, you don't ever have to put on a com tech. You can just be like, okay, here's my medium shot, but you're not like, and that's where I do feel like documentaries are really like, they're really fruitful groundwork for really learning how to tell that story and pay attention to that story as it evolves in front of you. You know, and I think as it evolves in front of you in documentaries, you also learn that like, it's not like you have to capture the shot at every second mm -hmm. you know in the end you're compressing time and you learn to do things like okay I'm a single camera but I need to like I need to have a wide shot here I'm going to need to have an in close up looking at you know what my subject is working on mm -hmm. um, like I feel like you really start to learn the nuts and bolts of what you need editorially to tell a story without sure. necessarily getting into the editing room We've talked about the kind of order and structure and power dynamics. Do so you feel like on documentary, a lot more is resting on the camera operator or cinematographer versus, say, narrative where you've got the director? I mean, obviously, there's directors with documentaries, but do you feel like you have a lot more, I guess, control over how the story is told when you're shooting something as it's happening versus... Section. Not at all, you know, <laughs> because um, uh, a documentary is really made in the editing room. Hmm. You know, 
I mean, you have like, you know, and from like following, cause I did these, like, like I did these true life MTV documentaries early on in my career. Um, and that was all about like, you're a, you're a one man band in the field following a subject and following kind of, you know, you have a producer that you talk to and notes that you make of like, Hey, these are the storylines that are emerging. This is what's going on. Um, and, and you kind of, you know, you, you're actively following it with a team that's supporting you remotely, but in the end, I mean, in the end, it's the editor who really puts it together. I think it's always a collaboration, you know, yeah. I don't think any kind of filmmaking, you know, and that this is why, like, I, I also say like, this is why I'm not a painter. Like I actually, like, I get energy from working with other people. I get inspired by collaborating with other human beings. Yeah. And I find that process of like building on each other's ideas to be far more exciting than like, you know, which is pretty why I'm not a writer also like that idea right. of sitting room and it coming out of just my head yeah um, absolutely really intimidating well speaking of the collaboration side um i'm curious so you worked on i know what you did last summer um the series and stepped <laughs> in that and it was the it's the first series that you were the only dp on um and you actually had time to really prep and d- decide a lot of the style working with the director there um tell me a little bit about approaching a series like that working with a director to kind of create a new take on something that's been told in a really kind of iconic way. Um, how did you go about kind of creating a fresh visual style for that, for that project? It was a very difficult project for many reasons. One of the big reasons was that kind of our, our director and the studio didn't necessarily like see eye to eye on Mm. what the series wanted to be. Even with the showrunner, you know, we kind of went in and I know that the original vision of the showrunner was that the show really wanted to take place on the big Island. The big Island has these like really, um, really dramatic landscapes um, uh, and, and almost like haunting, weird, bizarre places. But, you know, rarely does a show uh, in Hawaii shoot on other islands because the infrastructure is just not there. But like, you know, originally all of our characters were going to have older cars and then like two weeks before production, you know, Amazon and Sony were like, they need new cars. We're in Hawaii. Right. We needed to be aspirational horror. I think part of creating that look, you know, Craig McNeil, who was our pilot director, really wanted a more kind of loose documentary handheld mm-hmm. style. The network didn't want the show to be too, too dark. They really wanted to see Hawaii. And I feel like we landed a kind of, you know, on what is reflective of like, I don't know. I see like a millennial Instagram aesthetic within that show, but yeah. that's where like, you know, again, it's not like my thing and I'm not telling them what it needs. Right. To be. It's really like, it's really that philosophy. And I really like deeply hold to this philosophy that any creative endeavor that we um, participate in, and especially with a group of people kind of takes on a life of its own, mm-hmm. you know, and it will steer us in the right direction of what it wants to become. How did you decide when to bring in, say, like a handheld kind of, you know, verite approach versus like, we're going to make this look very clean and polished? Like, did you have a balance in mind or was it just, we're going to shoot what feels right in this moment? You know, I mean, I had a balance in mind, you know, and then that's where like there was, I think we incorporated more studio work Mm -hmm. Um, later on in the series. You know, there were a lot of kind of forces that really wanted the pilot just to be handheld. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, there was some studio pushback on that. Like, why don't you have a techno? Why don't you have a techno crane on this like car scene Um, or a Russian arm on this car scene? You know, and why? Because it was really like the aesthetic that the director wanted to lean into, Mm -hmm. which he got pushed back from the network. And that's, you know, and that's something that like is interesting to touch upon of like, you know, establishing a look of a show and like how, you know, it, it is, it's, um, it, it's a path that has to be treaded and navigated really Mm -hmm. um, uh, lightly at a political level, you know, like I, 
in the end, when it comes to, I think, you know, when it comes to working with studios, when it comes to working in TV, when it comes to working on bigger movies, like we have to realize as artists that, you know, while we are artists, you know, we are also like in an television space, you know, we're actually, we're getting paid really good money to exercise our craft. But, you know, in the end, we do have a boss to answer to, you know, like, it's not like, you can just go off and do whatever you want and tell right. everybody else to fuck off. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was like the, you know, like the the new wave of the 70s that like directors yeah. do that. But that's just not the environment that we live in anymore. You yeah. know, it's not about a singular vision. Right. It's about a collaborative vision. And it's not about, you know, one right way of telling a story. It's about having diverse voices that will tell stories in very different ways. Right. Yeah. I've heard you say a couple of variations of like, you know, like you basically you prep and then all that goes out the window once you start shooting and then you've, you're trying to figure it out as you go. And I've heard you say different variations of that. I think you, you gave a quote, someone yeah. said like TV's like threading a needle at 500 miles an hour, you know, like that, yeah. that sort of approach. Like, was there, was there, was there anything that you were like dead set on approaching that series that you were like, I really want to do this. I really want to try this. And then it pivoted in a way you couldn't have anticipated. And (laughs) like everything, you know, I really want, like, I think, you know, in my heart, I really, I, I wanted a darker show. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we went there kind of towards the end. And in some moments, but I know that like right before we started shooting the pilot, they were like, Hawaii, bright and sunny. And the thing is, Hawaii is not always bright and sunny. And it has, you know, very like interesting and uh, interesting, both like weather and light landscapes mm-hmm. that are very appropriate for horror, you know, yeah, right. the misty forests and the like, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I, like that was the one thing. And then I remember like the week before we started shooting, like new car. Yeah, (laughs) it's like Hawaii Five-0 more than, you know, horror. Yes, and then then we like slowly like, you know, like we did the pilot and then we started like leaning in the other direction. And I think there are some really nice dark moments in the series for sure. You've mentioned um, like Alien being a big influence on you as far as like horror you know, the horror genre goes and how that's shot. And um, you talk a lot about like how to shoot darkness in really interesting ways. One, are you a fan of the horror genre (laughs) overall? Um, And going into these projects, like, do you have certain, you know, DPs or certain shots that are always in the back of your mind going like, okay, how do I, how do I emulate this aesthetic or this look? Because it really speaks to me as a fan of the genre. You know, so I would expand that and I would say that, like, you know, for me, horror, science fiction, fantasy, um, kind of, they, to me, they blend. Mm. Um, And it is a landscape that I'm really interested in because I feel like it gives a lot of visual permission for, you know, invention and interpretation of, uh, you know, like, of darkness, for Mm -hmm. instance. You know, like, and I, and I do, I've talked about this a lot that like, you know, what does, what does darkness mean? Do you just like close down the aperture and we don't see anything except for like. Seems to be for a couple of years there. That was the approach. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen some things that have, um, that have done that and I'm like, you know, and darkness, you know, darkness actually you know like and 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 from shooting a lot of horror I've you know been in this inquiry of what darkness looks like so I look at darkness under a full moon night you know what darkness looks like in a city darkness in a city is hard lights you know through windows and street lights and silhouettes you know it's um it's more like I feel like darkness is more about the contrast playing on the lower lower end of the visual curve playing in the toe but you still need something you know to outline the character Mm. um I actually remember um I was shooting a documentary 
years ago in, um, and I was shooting a reenactment. I was in Hungary and I happened to be in Hungary at the same time that Anthony Dotmanel was in Hungary. And, um, and we had coffee and went on a walk and we had a wonderful talk about cinematography. And I knew that I was coming up. It was early on in my career on this reenactment in a stairwell. I didn't have a lot of lights to use. And I was like, what do you like any advice? Like, how should I approach this? And he was like, you know, slashes of lights on the wall mm. um rather than lighting the character you know slashes of light mm. you know are coming from the outside you know and that's something that like if you go back to noir I love like a play between naturalism and hyper reality and by naturalism I mean that the light falls you know that it's not like cosmetic three-point lighting yeah doing a ton of work to make some somebody look good but that it feels like you know like I also like I feel like throughout my career what I've learned and the progression of lighting has been that like you know one light is better than many right. you know and I almost like on set sometimes I play this game of like of like can I set that light once and never move it for the scene and right. then just working the keep working the scene around that light you know right. because that's really what it would be like in you know the real the real world yeah how, how do you also balance those really unique crazy maybe wide angle shots that you know stand out where it's like that's obviously the hero shot of the episode versus like your basic coverage of like okay we still have four people talking about this mystery or whatever the conversation is um how do you choose when to interject those really intense over the top kind of shots I mean, you know, I feel like part of my job is no matter no matter how the show is cut is to keep giving special visual moments, right. you know, um, and then not to like take it personally if only half of it is you right. or to, you know, throw in the towel and be like, oh, my God, then they only used medium shots right. in this last episode. I'm not giving them anything special. You know, my like I'm still, you know, and I feel like. I don't know, like, you know, I've been through this couple of years where I've worked nonstop and I mm -hmm. feel like the more and more I work, the more I'm like, I'm playing. Mm -hmm. I'm playing, I still like any any excuse to like expand the cinematography into an epic visual, you know, I guess what people call feature-like experience, you yeah. know, like I, I will do that. Mm -hmm. And I will give you all those close-ups too. I am curious. My wife actually mentioned this because we were watching through um, Pretty Little Liars original sin together. And, you know, she was talking, she said, because it came out in this year. So she was mm -hmm. talking about some of the references and and we were liking, you know, I, I'm a huge horror fan. So like the references to Carrie and Psycho and you feel a lot of Halloween in some of the episodes. Like, um, and she brought up an interesting question, which is how do you take, um, some of these homages, because obviously you're pulling on the power that exists in our cinematic memory, right? So you have these moments, you're like, I remember that from Jaws, or this is giving yeah. me that feeling of Carrie. Um, was there any conversation between the production side of like, how do we, with younger audience who maybe haven't seen these films yet, how do we make sure that they're still as impactful for that generation of viewer that's watching it? Um, and, or was it kind of an approach of like, if we can show it and, take the power of that scene, they'll go back and check those movies out. I, I think that's, you know, that that was really more of the approach. And that's what I really felt in my heart that like, you know, if there's a younger that that this is like this will inspire younger audiences to go back and check out some of those horror movies. But yeah, no, Pretty Little Liars was, you know, such a spectacular project to work on. Yeah. You know, Roberto, the showrunner, he really wanted a really dark aesthetic and he mm -hmm. protected that dark aesthetic, yeah. you know, yeah. and pushed back when like the studio was like a little brighter. Um, and you know, I think you know that I came in after the pilot yeah. Joe. Colin. Episode three, right? You were three. I came in for yeah. three, three through ten. I didn't do nine. We gave nine to Teo Maniachi, who had been my tandem DP, who incidentally, funny story, was the first DP I ever worked for that wow. morning after graduation. I was working on an independent feature that he shot. That's so cool. Um, and then, you know, 20, some a little over 20 years later, he's coming in to be my tandem DP, you know, and I, uh, it, it was, it was such 
a lovely full circle moment. And it was also like, it was made even better that Teo was like, you know, I'm your tandem DP. Are you happy with this? And I'd mm. be like, Teo, Maniachi, you're, you're the master. <laughs> like, right. I'm so happy with what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think his work was really, you know, really spectacular as well. And I feel like, you know, in the series, like, I like, and people have commented that they don't feel the change of the cinematographer so much, which I think is like a big kudos to the three of us. Mm. Um, I see some of those subtle changes, you know, I feel like I kind of brought a little bit more light and soft light into their faces, um, uh, you know, versus what Joe did. And then I feel like, you know, and Teo's work has always been so just, it's really beautiful. Mm. Um, uh, like he brought even a little bit more beauty into it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I knew about the switch. And so I was watching through and I was like waiting to see, like, I was like trying to see as many differences and it really is. It feels very cohesive and you can feel that like, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's really is an amazing show because I, I literally went into it going like, I don't know if I'll enjoy this, you know, it doesn't, it's, I'm not the target audience for pretty little liars, you know? And then, I was watching through, I was like, this is really good. And also for anyone who is like a younger viewer, like the watch list you could build off of that show to go back and watch everything connected to it is like immense. I mean, like when the, I think like episode one, they're like talking about De Palma and all the masters of horror and they're going through like my favorite Argento is this. And I was like, it's such a, it pulls on so much, but also feels like very much its own thing. Um, And that's the last thing I want to ask you kind of on the reference side of things is, you know, obviously there's a lot of homage and there's some things that are direct, like clearly this is a recreation of this shot. Um, But how do you, how do you tiptoe between homage to an original versus like just lifting the scene, trying to redo it exactly you know, well, I'll say that once we did do like, you know, we we did shoot the psycho shower scene shot for shot, but mm. not all of that is used in the edit. And that's right. part of it. You know, I think the other part of it is, you know, like it's more at a subliminal kind of instinctual level feeling mm. into the references. Like one of the things you, um, you know, when I prep for a series is, you know, I'll fill my office with with those images that Mm. we want to emulate you know so that like I still like sometimes I know for Monsterland I like had a vision board in my kitchen so that every day when I woke up and got my coffee I would look you know and I would subliminally again it's Mm. not like oh when I get there I'm gonna use a 50 millimeter lens to replicate exactly the shot but I like I fill my eyes with Mm. those references you know every single horror movie I think that's that's um reference in Pretty Little Liars, I ended up watching or re-watching or going back to, you know, and then I feel like, you know, it's like with the intent, you know, and the years of craft in my, like in my body, um, in my abilities to kind of replicate, it does, I feel like it, it happens at a subconscious level, but in order for it to happen at a subconscious level, you got to fill your subconscious. Yeah. Was there anything that you watched that you were paying homage to that you had never seen before that you kind of got introduced to through that show? Um, I didn't watch the it movies until I, uh, worked on pretty little hmm. liars because I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> were they as scary as you thought they'd be? they were really scary <laughs> was, was there anything you rewatched that you saw in a new light where you maybe had never well, watched I it with... love the, it was like which which it movie is it that like has the scary clown in the hall of mirrors yeah i think that's it too i think that's the newest yeah, and, one. and that's where like and that's you know and literally it was like from that you know in episode seven that we built the idea of that shot where um you see mouse from outside of the hall of mirrors banging on the it seems like know, a and- nightmare shooting in a room full of mirrors like it seems like that would be a cinematographer's nightmare is like okay let's shoot and there's reflective surfaces everywhere was that incredibly difficult no, you know, and there's, there's actually like, there's tricks to it. And it's funny, because I actually like, I, I find that stuff exciting, like the things <laughs> that are like, this, this is gonna be a nightmare. And it's like, it's like, you know, it's technically challenging. So it becomes exciting. 
I answered this question in another interview about Pretty Little Liars, but like, so here's the trick to a Hall of Mirrors and what really helped that Hall of Mirrors work. One, what really helped was part of the design of those arches of that Hall of Mirrors. So it wasn't pure mirrors everywhere. Mm -hmm. I think it had almost like pure mirrors everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that I imagine would take quite a bit more um, VFX work and removal. And then the second thing is that the mirrors gimbal So for the most part, we actually found that once we planned everything out, um, that we could gimbal the mirrors to pretty much minimize the reflections. So we did not like, you know, and and also prior to doing a sequence like that, you know, you you ask for the VFX budget to be able to do camera removals or that you're not pulling your hair out on the day, wasting time. Um, But I actually I was surprised it was a lot less, you know, that we caught our own reflections than what I thought. Yeah. One of the big elements of that series is that it is a largely female cast or a largely female cast, largely female crew working on the project. Um, and I did want to talk about um, the female gaze and how that changes the approach toward essentially slasher material um, going into it with that intent, with that mindset behind it. Um how did that influence the way that that was shot, the way that that project was worked on? At a very kind of basic, straightforward level, the what translated, you know, I think for me in the series to the female gaze was that we were um, we were shooting the girls from a lower angle, which mm. means we were making them look ta- taller, more powerful. Um, and that really, you know, when you go back to a lot of like 80s slasher films, you know, go back and mm-hmm. check it out. You know, most of the shots of the girls are like from that classic higher angle, you know, and again, like kind of, you know, the flip of the female gaze in the series is that like, you know, like Tabby wants revenge for what happens to her. And she is, um, they're not passive. They're not passive, you know, as much as uh, things are happening to them, they are all working to try to understand and take control of the situation. And I think that is reflected in the cinematography and the visuals through the very strong embrace of lower angles, you know, and by lower angles, I mean, like we did like slider without a base on the ground, no boxes underneath it was, you know, was, was a very common camera setup for us. Looking at the ceilings, we're looking up at people. Um, And you were shooting on like, 10 millimeter I mean you were shooting really wide in a lot of those shots. like a lot of those shots are super super wide full you can see everything in the room yes. um yes. that's interesting I, I I noticed it now like now I'm thinking through it and like that makes sense um but I've never even noticed obviously the the bad guy in all these movies is always huge and lurking but I've never even noticed the the angle perspective like that oh. That's, now I have to go back and rewatch everything. That's okay. It gives me, it you know, I mean, uh, Malia who plays mouse is, you know, I l- pray a little shorter than me. I'm five, three, you know, but all of our girls, you know, again, and, and, and it is, and, and those angles are also very reminiscent of like art house horror. Yeah. But I will say that from the male gaze, usually when you go back to those early slasher films, a lot of the girls, a lot of the victims are shot from a higher angle. It's mm. that like, you know, um, it's like a leftover belief that a woman looks better from a higher angle, which uh, I don't uh, isn't necessarily true, you know, yeah. and like our young actresses actually look good from whatever angle you shoot them from. It's kind right. of, you'd have to do a lot of work not to make them look good. Right. You'd have to be intentional, go out of your way to set it up. So yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm glad I asked that because I was curious you know, what the, what the approach was. And then I was going to say the wide angle lens. Um, and I feel like I kind of, um, uh, I started opening that can of worms up in episode three. And that was, you know, our widest lens was a 17 millimeter lens, but we were shooting at 5K, which means we were cropping into the sensor. So everything's a little bit tighter. And I started using that 17 millimeter lens at 8K. And a lot of the time, you know, throughout the series, um, uh, we were jumping out 
to that super wide 8K, 17 millimeter. And I actually got that from Monsterland and I got that from mm. Logan Kibbins, who I worked with on Monsterland. I remember us having a conversation, prepping our episode. And she was like, you know, like wide lenses. And I was like, horror and like thrillers and wide lenses like does that really work and she was like yeah it totally works and so we um we incorporated we got this lens called the um it's from airy it's an eight millimeter rectilineal lens so it's eight millimeters but it doesn't bend anything and it pretty much if you put it in a room it sees like you know close to 270 degrees of that room like if you're standing a little close to the map box you're going to be yeah. in the shot but it doesn't bend any lines so it has this like you know to me it's um you know it's something unnatural it's a way of viewing a space that's unnatural but because it's not fisheye and mm. bending you can't quite put your finger on it like yeah. what it is and that's what i think it is with lenses sometimes you know when we want to create disquieting moments it's like then it's leaning into what is unnatural yeah but not necessarily like making it so loud that you're distracted by it mm. you're just you know you again you feel it at a really instinctual level yeah. that like something's off and then on Monsterland, that eight millimeter lens became kind of like the signifier of like the the evil thing's gonna happen yeah so I brought that to Pretty Little Liars and yeah. you know I love those big epic oh yeah I I love that lights. like anytime I see those kind of shots in anything like whether it's like The Shining Evil Dead uses those a lot you know um I mean, X just this year used that quite a bit where it'd be, you know, the shots in the shower where it's like, you feel like you're a thousand feet in the air looking down, you know, like I love that kind of look and seeing that again through this, like even the shots of like the movie theater on the outside in Pretty Little Liars, where it's like this really gorgeous, you can see every element instead of just a close up of the marquee. Um, really, really cool. So I, I definitely want to ask about that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, oh, I, I am going to say one more thing really quickly. You can edit it out that, yeah, you Go know, ahead. the wide angle uh, approach was very much part of the visual language of Pretty yeah. Little Liars. Even our close-ups and our coverage, we tried to stay on wider lenses. And part of that was also, you know, to give us that sense of, it gives you that sense of urgency. Like you're there with the person, you're mm. not watching their story, you know, because literally, you know, when you're on a close-up on a, you know, 35 millimeter lens, 32 millimeter lens, you know, the camera has to be right there, you know, within two and a half feet of the actor. Yeah. Yeah. Which translates, I feel like visually again, differently. And it's not something that you're like, oh, I see. They they are making me feel like I am there with them because they're like, again, yeah. they're all like it's very subliminal. Right. Right. Yeah. That's something, um, again, talking with my wife about the series. Cause she was, she kept mentioning, she's just like, she's like, I get, cause she kept rolling her eyes and look at me. Cause there'd be references to stuff. And it's, she's like, this sounds like you, like, it sounds like you wrote this. <laughs> cause like, there's so many <laughs> conversations where I'm always like talking about all these different topics. And she, uh, she looked over at me and she's like, she's like, do you think people, um, she was saying, do you think people, she was talking about younger viewers, like, do you think they get the same impact out of it? And I was like, I think it's definitely enriched, but I think so much of it is just the reason it worked in the seventies in this movie, it still works today. Like it is so much subliminal, like Carrie works, not just because it's Carrie, it's like those shots work. They're effective. Like there's a reason it worked the first time and it still continues to work now. Um, and I love all those little subliminal moments. And then I love being able to sit back once you know what those inspirations are and going like, okay, this is what they're doing. Like, this is how they're creating this, this experience for me. You embrace technology in a way that I don't see in a lot of interviews, like directors or cinematographers, there's tends to be this nostalgia toward what has been where it's like the film versus digital conversation, you know, that topic comes up all the time. And you're very much like, we have this amazing 8K digital camera that we're shooting on that gives us all these opportunities. Um, do you want to throw your uh, hat into the film versus digital debate? And why do you love, you know, you even mentioned Slumdog Millionaire, which the technology that they used for using digital, you know, Danny Boyle was using that 28 days later, I mean, going and using before it was ready, you know, before it was like 
perfect and flawless. You can't tell the difference. Um, why do you embrace new technology so eagerly and uh, what excites you about it? Well, you know, I'll say while it's like nice and romantic to be nostalgic, the times that have passed had their own problems, mm -hmm. their own pains, you know, and the only place that we're headed to is the future. So like might as well look to the future right. with an open mind, you know, and beyond and beyond having an open mind, you know, I, I do, I like, I have to say that like the lighting, um, advances, the high-speed camera advances, like, uh, of the past like five to 10 years, like have really reignited my own personal excitement in mm. cinematography, you know? And I think it was COVID that really, it was, or it was on Monsterland that I worked with Rich Ulivella, amazing gaffer out of New York. Um, and he's very actively kind of involved in manufacturing LED lights. So he also mm. like, like his whole entire, like, we ran the entire show off a dimmer board for the first time. And it was largely mm. a location show, which means that we were like going into practical homes and tying into the breaker box and putting like, you know, putting everything on a dimmer board so that we had full control, you know, and like over the past couple of years, you know, things that just a couple of years ago were just full control from 32K to 56K, you know, now our RGB on a color wheel, you know, doing that the kind of lighting with the neon lights and the changing things. Um, and I know what you did last summer, like these days pretty much takes no time, you know, I mean, it does, it takes planning and rigging and all of that stuff, right. but the lights are much lighter weight, we don't have to gel things, I feel like COVID really kind of pushed that along with that idea of how do we reduce the amount of people who are yeah. actively repeatedly going into a set, you know, and COVID actually allowed me on a couple of productions to really like then push what I had learned from Rich that like, mm -hmm. yes, we need need we need um transmitters for all of our lights we need to be able to communicate with our lights remotely working with high speed cameras it's like these past several years it's the first time that like i feel like I can light a wide shot with just mm -hmm. practical lamps and not have the lamps be blown out, you yeah. know, overwhelming while the actor's faces are too dark. There's very, you know, it's like oftentimes, yeah, the, the space at night is lit naturally on the inside. And then we're just coming in and augmenting some of the close-ups. Part of lighting is, is knowing when not to light. Hmm. <laughs> lighting is knowing which lights to turn off but yeah no i i i think you know um there's a huge democratization of filmmaking that has happened in, in with digital you know i can't be nostalgic to a time past when you know where there were like the 10 or 15 known male directors who you know came mo for the most part from privileged backgrounds from homogeneous like, you know what i mean like like there is so much opportunity that has been gained through, you know, cheaper, more lightweight technologies. I owe my career to reality TV, you know, mm -hmm. it's years of operating on RuPaul's Drag Race that like kept me financially afloat while I yeah. shot indie films on the side. So yeah, not nostalgic at all. But you know, I, I am, I think I am going to get a, um, a cheap uh, medium format camera and shoot some film yeah. soon, maybe even make a dark room in my bathroom. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's the nostalgia is kind of a privilege you know, that a lot of people don't have like to be able to afford to do it. Well, before we transition into the rapid round here, I, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I've touched on a little bit, but conversations, single locations, uh, your newest film, The Listener, uh, directed by Steve Buscemi, which is, I mean, Steve Buscemi, um, you know, t tell me a little bit about working in single location environments, um, because The Listener is obviously, I mean, it's set in one spot. Uh, so how do you make that fresh, interesting? Um, and I assume it's like the house, you know, the house of mirrors, you're going into it going, this is going to be a challenge. Um, how do you go about shooting one location for such a long period of time and making it uh, visually interesting? I think it was really about um, treating the location as a character. And as we scouted, you know, being really cognizant to spending you know, spending the entire movie within the location, we actually, I think, 
And the first place we scouted was the place that we went through, uh, went with. Um, we looked at a bunch of other places as well. Um, but what was nice about the location that we chose was that it was almost like a circular railroad apartment that you could walk in a circle through all of the rooms without ever going into a hallway. Whereas a lot of the other places that we scouted were, you know, it was like, um, you know, a square, a, a box and a hall and a room and another room where like there wasn't um, like we, we really felt like in this location, we could look at the space from many different angles. You know, each room had different portals that I could look through. Um, each room basically had at least two doorways, um, which is very different than working in a box that has one doorway, you know, or or shooting in a room that has one doorway, if that makes sense, because then I can have a frame within a frame, you know, mm. like push into somebody from outside of the room, I can follow them through the other side of the room. Um, it was funny because I actually, I shot that right after I know what you did last summer and I have been working um, in Hawaii and in New York City in the winter. And it was the first time in many years I had shot in LA and that hmm. first location um, had like 12 steps to get to the yard that then gets you to the back house where we were shooting. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that it was like from a production perspective, it was like, but how is the crew going to deal with these 12 steps? And I was right. like, oh my gosh, I like, I've been shooting in such difficult, like this, like it would have never like occurred to me as any kind of a difficulty right. um, to have to haul our gear up 12 stairs. And then you're set. <laughs> and then you're and, good. And then we're set for the week. Um, so uh, yeah, that was kind of, you know, that's where we were like pushed to keep looking at other mm. locations, but we didn't find anything quite as interesting as that house. And, you know, and I think for Steve, it was very important also, like, and he was adamant that that, that was the place. It had an energy. And I think, you know, if we're going to do something in one space, that space has to have an energy that can match the actor's energy and presence, mm. yeah. you know, that, that character. That, that, I have to imagine that's a challenge too, because so I think about, you know, shooting something, I have to imagine that it can be tempting when you're, when you're feeling the threat, because the threat, right, is that it's going to be boring, right? The threat of one location, that's the threat of any project, but one location, someone's going to be sitting there and audiences looking in the same area for a long time. The concern is that they're going to lose interest visually in what's happening. Um, did you did you feel any danger or like threat of, okay, what if I try to be too creative with the camera in this moment where it distracts from the narrative that's being told where it's like, you know, cause, cause you might just default and go, let me do a really interesting camera move. That'll like re-engage them. Um, did you feel that concern at all approaching it? You know, I feel like I've gotten like, questions from people that are like oh did you use a techno crane and right yeah, yeah. and you know but i uh so working with steve buscemi let's talk about working with steve buscemi i yeah, think so let's let's do that yeah yeah steve buscemi is an actor's director um you know and it was very clear from the beginning um that this was going to be very much anchored around the performance protecting the performance. I've never like worked with a director who had like he had to have the other actors reading with Tessa mm -hmm. for sure live, not a stand in, not somebody else, you know, on a television show like that actor wouldn't be available and mm -hmm. the AD would be reading the lines to the actor, but the the level of care for the depth of the performance was like, you know, was, was huge. Right. Um, and I think, you know, early on we had a conversation and he really like, and I don't know, I feel like I work with directors in a way that I like, I hear and I listen and I see what they need without necessarily having an in-depth conversation and being like, Hey, Steve, you want to bring a techno crane in here? No, Anka, I really want, room for Tessa to be able to create mm -hmm. and for these performances to feel real. You know, what's funny was that 
you know, I there was a section of the movie where she goes outside and she walks around in the yard. Um, and I felt really strongly that we should use Steadicam for that. Um, and Steve was, uh, he shared with me that as a performer, he had always found working with a Steadicam extremely distracting, having this thing mm. in front of you um, and you have to emote and act and that it's a challenge. Um, and I talked him into using the Steadicam um, and then the night that we were supposed to do those shots, we had a problem with the study cam and I ended up doing those shots handheld and it works great. And I think deep down, Steve was really happy, but this is, this is a slow movie. This yeah. is, um, you know, and, and, and I wish that people had a chance to see it in the movie theater. When I got to see it on a big screen in Venice, um, it was a very impactful movie hmm. at an emotional level. And I, I love that like it holds these quiet moments that have no dialogue and no point really no like narrative forward driving force but what they're there for is for you to be able to feel the impact yeah. of conversations that are being had in the film and watching it in the movie theater I really felt really really emotionally profoundly moved mm. by moments and like I was really affected by those conversations which you know a lot of the time when you work on something and you watch it you're like oh I remember when we did that I wanted to do that mm. and you're not in it and my test for like whether we've really done a good job or not is um uh, am I able to forget that I worked on the thing and just experience it as a viewer and Steve is uh you know he he is he is such a deep storyteller and an incredible performer and in that I feel like he's an incredible guide you know for other actors also incredibly co collaborative the whole experience was was awesome you know yeah. it was um I mean what an honor to work with Steve Buscemi and you know after the first couple of setups uh I think I was offering him the viewfinder to show him another <laughs> shot he was like I love everything and you know I don't I don't need to see it until mm. it's ready to be shot you know, wow. I think we're really on the same page and you get what I want. And uh, so do your thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Love it. Love it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead because I don't want you to have to run from this into everything else you have to do today. So I'll, I'll go through our last questions here. Um, I guess the first question I will ask is um, you've worked on uh, a few things that are remake or remake adjacent. If you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? Um, I don't know, you know, and I think it's just inspired by this conversation right now. Maybe it would be interesting to remake out of Africa hmm. or a version of out of Africa, you know, like a modern day version of out of Africa. That's not necessarily set around a coffee plantation, but, uh, around an adventure in, um, you know, somewhere off the beaten path between two young people, one searching for security and the other one pushing the limits of insecurity. <laughs> hmm. Which of your projects do you think is the best representation of you as a creator? I mean, I really, I think it's all of them put together that are a representation of me as a creator. I am incredibly proud of the work that we did on Pretty Little Liars. I'm so happy that we got to go that dark and stay that dark and really like I'm so proud of the look that we created and maintained, you know, and the visual language that we developed. Um, but, you know, I think, I, I, I don't think it's a true, like, it's just a piece of me, just like everything that I do is a piece of me and the totality mm -hmm. of the body of work is really representative. Love that. Um, what is a film that people would be surprised to know that you enjoy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't Next. know. I watch really bad TV for fun. You know, um, let's see. I mean, I can tell you like what is a show that people might be surprised or not surprised at all that I enjoy. What would that be? Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. Okay. And nice um nothing to do with filmmaking <laughs> right right uh what do you think is the best decade of film history like what do you find yourself revisiting the most 
I feel like the 1970s and the American new wave, the French new wave, mm. you know, when we liberated cameras from their giant dollies and went into mm. the streets and shot things in locations that had energy and were characters of their own. Yeah. And the last question I ask everybody that comes on the show, what is the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who is listening to this? You're never too young to be successful. Um, uh, I would say that. I would say that it's also like, don't let anybody tell you that your dreams are impossible because they're not. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm very much having that experience of like, I, I am achieving the dreams that I had that I, you know, that took me to film school in my early 20s. And all too often, I heard things like, don't do it, pick another career, if if there's anything else. Like, I remember we had filmmakers come to talk to us when when I was at NYU. And, and, and I remember there was somebody who was like, if there's anything else you love doing, do that, don't do this. It's a hard life. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it's a hard life anyway. You might as well do what you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and dreams do come true. And, you know, and it's not true that you have to forever be a starving artist in the film industry. You can actually make money and make a living and have a happy, creative life. Yeah. I I love that answer. Um, And thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this and for, for all the answers I could talk seriously for a lot longer. Um, And I, I really do appreciate you, you coming on and sharing and look forward to seeing the work, literally seeing the work that you uh, put out in the near future. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate this too. And I love the conversation. I could keep talking for hours. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.